John chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. After this, he, that is Jesus, went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins on the money changers, uh, the coins of the money changers, and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. This is what is called by many the cleansing of the temple. Because the Lord Jesus rebukes and drives out those who were desecrating and corrupting it. There's a second occasion in which Jesus cleansed the temple, which occurred near the end of his earthly ministry. The second cleansing of the temple is recorded in the Synoptic Synoptic Gospels in Matthew 21, Mark 11, and Luke 19. Some believe that this record of the cleansing of the temple found in John 2 is the same that is recorded in those other Gospels. They believe that John takes this event that was later in his ministry and places it thematically at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. However, I'm not convinced that John is recording the same event as we have recorded in the other Gospels. Because of differences in the accounts and the chronological nature of how John is writing at this point in his Gospel. Therefore, This here in John chapter 2 is probably not the same occurrence recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This record of Jesus cleansing the temple gives us a picture of Jesus that is very unlike how many portray him and think of him. These verses don't fit the emotionless and even effeminate picture that some have of Jesus. Jesus had godly affections. He had a holy love for the things of God. He had a godly zeal. And yes, Jesus demonstrated a holy anger, a righteous indignation towards sin. There are no other occasions where we see such holy wrath and righteous indignation as we do in this cleansing of the temple. So let's just briefly consider these verses under two headings this evening to prepare us for our time of prayer together. First, the rampant abuse of the temple, and then secondly, we'll see the righteous response of the Savior. And as we look at this, we'll see Christ's zeal for His church, a zeal that we should have as well. First, consider the rampant abuse of the temple. Here's the occasion for this holy, righteous anger of Jesus. In verse 12, it says, After this, he went down to Capernaum. Now, he was in Cana, Galilee there, and 
And it says he went down because Cana is a higher sea level. He and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. Verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. It says he went up, not geographically, but speaking of up because it was at a higher sea level. Here it's the Passover is upon the Jewish people. You remember the Passover was a feast commemorating God's deliverance of Israel from Egyptian slavery in the days of Moses, as recorded in Exodus chapter 12. And during the Passover observance, an unblemished lamb was killed and its blood applied to the doorposts and the lintel of the house. And for those who did not have the blood of that sacrificial paschal lamb on the lintel and the doorpost, God, in his wrath, killed the firstborn male in that household, whether man or beast. That's recorded for us in Exodus 12, verses 12 to 14. Ultimately, the Passover pointed to Jesus Christ, for he is our Passover. In a future Passover, Jesus would observe this feast with his disciples, during which time he would institute the Lord's Supper. This would be a time of remembrance of his death on the cross and his shed blood so that God would pass over our sins. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7 says, For Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. But for this particular Passover, recorded here in John 2, Jesus would go and observe the Passover in obedience to God's ordinances under the Old Covenant. The observance of Passover was followed by the observance of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, recorded in Exodus 12, verse 15. There would be many in Jerusalem who would observe the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The the city would be teeming with people. There would be many sacrifices that people would offer, and the need for animals, and the sacrifices, and even the doves for those who were... uh, of lesser financial means would would be sacrificed. And so the need for these animals would be great. And where there are many people, you can be sure that there are always those who would profit from them. And so there would be those who would take advantage of the situation. And that's what we find here in verse 14. Jesus found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their table. Now this is the temple. We spoke of the temple this morning during our Sunday school hour. This is not Solomon's temple that he built. Remember that was destroyed by the Babylonians. This temple was rebuilt in the days of Ezra, as recorded in the Old Testament books of Haggai and Zechariah, which we considered this morning during our Sunday school hour. This temple would eventually be called Herod's temple because Herod allowed the Jews to expand it and because he aided in the funding of the expansion of the temple. Today, the Western Wall, the so-called Wailing Wall, is all that remains of the ancient walls of Herod's temple. At the heart of that temple was the most holy place. And going out from there would be the holy place And then the court of the priests, then the court of Israel for Jewish men, then the court of the women for Jewish women, 
And then finally, the court of the Gentiles, the outer court. When Jesus found those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and money changers seated at their tables, this was probably taking place in the court of the Gentiles. Now understand what's happening here. This was the house of God. This temple belonged to Jesus. What would take place there would point to him. The shadows and types, the priests themselves, the high priest himself. But the purpose for which God commanded that temple to be built was not being realized because of the sin of Israel. It was symbolic of the presence of the glory of God. The pictures, symbols, and types pointed to the glory of God and the coming of the Savior. The temple was the center of worship of the true and living God in the Old, the old Covenant. So Jesus expresses his disdain for the sin of Israel and its religious leaders by cleansing the temple. They had desecrated the temple. Jesus cleanses it. Now how had they desecrated the temple? What tells us he found them selling oxen, sheep, doves, money changers at their tables, making a profit from their activity. So they were not only selling these animals for the sacrifices, but they were making inordinate profits. Since it was difficult to travel with animals, especially from long distances, some would purchase their sacrificial animals when they arrived in Jerusalem. So this was the perfect opportunity for price gouging. And then there were money changers. These people were there to exchange Roman currency for Jewish coins, which were required to purchase the animals. And then there was the annual temple tax, described in Exodus 30, verse 13. And so what's happening here is they're, they're making a profit from the situation. Now, why do I say that this is taking place? Why do I say that they're price gouging and they're uh, charging excessive and inflated, inflated amounts? Well, in verse 16, he says, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. And so we find what was really taking place in the words, a place of business. Their activity was not a ministry or for the purpose of serving those who came to Jerusalem for such a holy time. They were there for business, for a profit. This is translated a house of trade in the ESV or the King James and New King James says it was being used as a house of merchandise. The temple, the house of God, was not meant to be a place of business and commerce. On the other occasion that I spoke of in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus said this, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. You're making a place, he, he says, a den, a place where you hide. When you're doing something wrong and the law is after you, they were like robbers, and now they're really making it a place where they can hide out and, and do these things under the cloak of seeking the good of the people. But really, they were making it a robber's den. Now, no doubt they were excusing what they were doing, cloaking what they were doing, money changing and selling 
as a quote-unquote need and service for the people who came to the temple. Is this not our sinful human nature? We can even take what is holy and created for the glory of God and use it for our own sinful desires. And sinners are good at cloaking their sinful motives and justifying their sin. But Jesus here exposes their sinful motives for selling these animals in the temple and money changing and robbing the people. They were ignoring the purpose for which the temple was built in the first place, the glory of God. Instead, they worshiped the idol of money. And they did so brazenly, boldly, and blatantly in the house of God. Again, this was supposed to be a place where God was worshiped in the manner which he prescribed in the Old Covenant. Instead, they're worshiping their idol, money. People are still looking for ways to profit from Christianity. Anytime you hear Christian whatever industry, those words are an oxymoron. Christian industry, in the sense of making money in commerce, this is one of the reasons, you've heard me say this often, when it's so blatantly called, unashamedly called, the Christian music industry, those things don't go together. It's really self-proclaimed profit-making in the name of Christian. It's just like when we put Christian on the front of things. Christian yoga is an oxymoron. Just because you say it's Christian doesn't mean it's Christian. People are still looking for ways to profit from Christianity. Someone might think, what's the big deal? What's wrong with a little capitalism? There's a need. We're meeting the need. The problem is greed. Jesus said in Luke 12, verse 15, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. At the heart of false prophets is greed. 2 Peter 2, verse 3, In their greed they will exploit you with false words. 2 Peter 2, verse 14 says that they have hearts trained in greed. And this is why deacons and elders in the qualifications given for both those offices, it says in the scripture, they're not to be fond of sordid gain, selfish gain. The pastor in 1 Timothy 3, verse 3, is to be free from the love of money. And that's true of all of us. Hebrews 13, verse 5. Make sure your character is free from the love of money because greed amounts to idolatry. Colossians 3, verse 5. Greed and Jesus don't go together. Greed and gospel don't go together. Greed and so-called Christian don't go together. Greed and the glory of God do not go together. As A.W. Pink wrote, the Lord will not tolerate an unholy mixture of worldly things with spiritual. And that's what was taking place in the temple. And so we see this rampant abuse of the temple in the days that Jesus walked this earth. But I want you to consider, secondly, the righteous response of the Savior. It says in verse 15, And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple, 
with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said to them, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. And we need to take in what was happening. We need to really understand the scene. And when we do, we might, if you were there, your jaw might have dropped. He <laughs> said, wow, what is taking place? But this was a righteous response of the Lord Jesus Christ. It says he made a scourge of cords. And the word made here is something that he took the time to fashion a whip made of braided ropes. He made it. This wasn't a flash of uncontrolled sinful anger. This was no outburst. The Savior was sinless on this occasion, and throughout His life, He was the righteous Savior. So He takes the time to make a scourge, a whip, made of braided ropes, and He takes it and He drives them out. I mean, again... Imagine the picture. The word drive here means to eject something by force, to throw out, to expel. So he took the time to fashion a whip of braided cords. He drove out the people. He drove out the sheep, the oxen. He commanded that the doves be taken away. He poured the coins out on the ground. He turned over their money-changing tables And he verbally rebuked and admonished them. Stop making my father's house a place of business. So this is my father's house. Revealing again his divine sonship. This was his temple. He could have done more. But he drives them out. He cleanses the temple. And it tells us in verse 17 that his disciples remembered that it was written... Zeal for your house will consume me. From Psalm 69, verse 9. So we see here that holy zeal and righteous anger were attributes of Jesus, the Son of God, when He walked this earth. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, Jesus miraculously turns water into wine at the wedding at Cana. Jesus demonstrates a kindness there, but here we see His severity. Our Savior is loving, but He's also holy. The words of Romans 11, verse 22, it speaks of the kindness and severity of God. The same was true of Jesus when He walked this earth. He was kind, He was compassionate, but He was severe. He had a holy, righteous anger. And he demonstrated it on this occasion. This isn't the only occasion. Another occasion when he would be falsely accused of breaking the Sabbath or or doing something that was wrong. It says, for example, in Mark 3, verse 5, after looking around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. So on that occasion, the scripture says it was anger, but not sinful anger. It's a righteous anger. He's grieved. He's stirred up by the hardness of heart. And he has a holy anger at their unrighteousness. 
This was a perfect expression of the holiness of Jesus. Again, A.W. Pink wrote this, God is light as well as love. God is inflexibly righteous as well as infinitely gracious. God is holy as well as merciful. And we do well to remind ourselves of this. Scripture declares, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, as all who defy Him will yet discover. Scripture speaks of the wrath of the Lamb. And Pink says, The unresisting money changers and cattle dealers fleeing in terror before the flashing eye and upraised hand of Jesus give warning of what shall happen when the Lamb rekindles His wrath. In Revelation chapter 6, verses 16 and 17, they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? There will be a final day, the righteous indignation of the Lamb of God, the righteous Savior, who will deal out retribution on all who do not come to faith in Him. God has righteous anger. The Lord Jesus had righteous anger. And so while we rejoice in His kindness, let us never forget His holiness his holiness. In Isaiah 42, verse 8, God said, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. He is zealous for his glory. In the Lord Jesus Christ, here the God-man, the incarnate Savior, is zealous for the glory of his own name. So holy zeal and righteous anger Indeed, are attributes of Jesus, the Son of God. And Jesus demonstrated that holy zeal for the house of God, the temple, here in John chapter 2. He was righteously angry when the house of God was desecrated and misused. Now, the point of that is not that we should simply be concerned with how this building is used. If I follow up on what I said this morning, the issue now is not simply the the physical structure. That's, That's not the point. But the old covenant temple pointed to a greater temple. The church, the people of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16 says, For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. We are the temple of God. The church is the temple of God, the new covenant temple of God, where His glory is manifested, through which God is glorified. Listen, Jesus still abhors irreverence and ungodliness. In his house, the church, the people of God. And Jesus abhors anything but the sole worship of his name and the right and biblical worship of his name in his temple in the new covenant, namely the church, the people of God. It's evident from this passage in John chapter 2 that the Jews did not view the temple rightly. They did not see it as a place 
where God displayed His glory. What a marvelous place the Old Covenant temple was. And those who came to the temple should have come with reverence and awe. Yet they did not view it as a place of reverence and worship. They were treating it like a place of business. They had a low view of the temple. The temple existed for them. It had become a place for selfish gain. Jesus is still intolerant of the desecration of His temple, namely the church, of which He is the cornerstone. He has a holy zeal and jealousy for His bride. And so, as we pray tonight and we consider these things, we need to pray for ourselves. We, we can't do what Jesus did. There's some things that we don't follow His example in. We, we can't go into false churches not preaching the gospel or places that are really being used for a house of business rather than a house that's really preaching and proclaiming the gospel and, and drive them out. There's some things we don't follow His example in. But what we do follow His example in, in is that there is a need for a holy zeal and righteous anger among believers. Unfortunately, we are too accustomed to sin. Believers are actually commanded to be righteously angry. Ephesians 4, verse 26. Be angry. It's a command. And yet, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. It's actually a command there to righteous indignation. But because, as sinful human beings, when we are righteously angry, we're often so close to crossing the line to sinful anger that we need to be careful that we do not sin. But yet we are to be righteously angry. We are to be stirred up by those things that stir up God in righteous anger and indignation. We all have zeal. We are zealous people. There are those things that stir us up. We're zealous for food. We're zealous for coffee. What happens when someone messes with your coffee or maybe tells you how you can drink it and how you can't and puts a sign maybe over the entrance to the sanctuary? We're zealous for entertainment and leisure. We're zealous for our favorite sports teams, Duke and Carolina. We're zealous for money. Sadly, we're not always zealous or as zealous as we should be for the right things and for the things that truly matter. Therefore, we often are unaffected by sins that ought to stir up our righteous indignation. We ought to be zealous in this day we live in for male and female as God created it. Part of what we have to be careful of, brethren, is as the the world is pressing us and pressing us, and as it's all around us more and more increasingly, this gender rebellion against what God has made, we need to be careful that we don't grow accustomed to it. We need to be zealous for God's holy creation of male and female. We ought to be zealous for God's holy creation of marriage, Marriage is being desecrated in our world and even in the professing church. Even the Pope himself is now giving credence to same-sex unions. God created one man and one woman 
and the permanence of marriage. We need a righteous anger against all that desecrates marriage. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. We ought to have a holy anger against fornication and adultery and all forms of immorality, including pornography. Those battling immorality and lust of various kinds, one of the problems is a lack of holy affections and a godly zeal for marriage or for your wife or for your husband or for the glory of God in your marriage. Oh, how our marriages would grow and how God would be glorified if we had a holy zeal for our marriages and they, that consumed us. We ought to be zealous for human life. There has been for many years a devaluing and desecration of human life that pervades our society and our world. We ought to be continuing to pray against those who would kill unborn babies. But we ought to also be zealous for the church of Jesus Christ, the bride of Christ. There is a need for a holy zeal for the church and a righteous indignation when the church is desecrated. Are you stirred up when people seek to harm the church of Jesus Christ? There should be a righteous indignation when men desecrate and seek to destroy the the house of God, the, the church. Do you get zealous when people do harm to your children? Do you get righteously angry if someone slanders your wife? Or slanders your children? What about when people do harm to the children of God? What about when people do harm to the church? Why do we have such a lack of zeal for the bride of Christ? I think of 1 Corinthians. You're familiar with 1 Corinthians and the Apostle Paul speaks of those who are divisive, in the church. There's division and disunity among them. He deals with that in chapter 1, but also in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And it's in that context that he says, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? It's in the context of of division and disunity in the church that he reminds them, you are, you, plural, are a singular temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you. This is where God's glory should be manifested. And it's in that context that then he says in the next verse, verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 3, if any man destroys the temple of God, how? By disunity, divisiveness, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy. And that is what you are. But yet, how divisiveness in the church is accepted. And doesn't stir up holy affections for the bride of Christ. When the church, the bride of Christ, the people of God are harmed in some way, there should be a righteous anger. For the church is where God uniquely dwells and manifests His glory in the world. Do you have this kind of holy, righteous zeal and even indignation for the church when someone desecrates it? Do you have holy affections for that which is holy? Do you have holy hatred for that which is sinful? 
Are you zealous? So let me just stir us up again tonight and ask you to consider your own heart. How often are you disturbed and stirred up, even as our Savior was, when the church of Jesus Christ is desecrated in some way? Christ was zealous for his church. He is zealous for his church. Are we 